0: This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com.
1: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window.
0: Hey guys, happy Christmas and Merry Holidays and a ho-ho-ho to you. I hope you're having an amazing day wherever you are. I hope you're full of turkey and delicious Christmas dinner and are ready to settle down to this story today. I'm bringing it back. It's one from last year, but it's very apt for Christmas because it features reindeers. Spoiler alert, none of them have red noses. And as far as I know, none have pulled Santa's sleigh, but they are an intrinsic part of the way of life for the Nenets of Siberia who live in the Yamal Peninsula. Now, these guys are the oldest existing true nomads. They make a living by herding reindeer in a place that literally translates to the end of the world. That's what it's called. And when author and explorer Christine Amor lavar learned that she had a third-degree connection to this tribe, she set about arranging an unprecedented trek to accompany them during their southward migration. Five months later, she was leading the first all-female group to cross that part of Siberia, and she was doing it with the Nenets by their side. It's an incredible story, and she is an incredible woman too. Since this episode was aired about a year ago... She has been busy, to say the least. And what's cool about Christine is, although she is a hardcore explorer, she's also a businesswoman. She's the founder of 2 nonprofits, Women on a Mission, which you're going to hear a lot about later on, and another one called Her Planet Earth. She set world records, and she's raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for various causes, including climate change, in which she's very, very active. Plus, she has gone on another amazing trip. And we're actually going to hear about that next year. She crossed the Namib Desert in Namibia, the first all-female team to do that with my wife. That's right. Mrs. Armchair Explorer accompanied her on this adventure. I was so impressed when I first interviewed Christine that I immediately said, How can I get my wife on your next expedition? And it happened. It's an incredible story. She brought a microphone with her and we're going to do a special episode next year all about that adventure. So do keep your eyes and ears open for that. But for now, sit back, enjoy. It's Christmas. The elves should be spoiling you right now. Pour yourself a cup of something lovely and enjoy this special reindeer episode.
1: It takes a few hours to get ready. So the dogs are running around, the women are packing up, the men are putting the reindeer in place in a queue with a sleigh attached to it. And then basically before you know it, we're like, okay, everybody on, let's go.
0: Today I'm speaking with adventurer and author Christine amour Lavar. She has led record-breaking expeditions into some of the most inhospitable places on the planet. Including the frigid snowy tundras of Siberia, where we'll be joining her today as she embarks on an epic journey alongside the indigenous Nenet tribe following the annual migration of their reindeer herds to their winter feeding grounds. It's going to be a good one. But before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, The North Face. When you wear the North Face, it's more than a jacket. It's the calling to get out there and explore. And if you want to answer that call, you need the right gear. In fact, the expedition you're going to hear about today wouldn't have been even remotely possible without proper clothing and equipment. That's why choosing a brand like the North Face makes every adventurer's life easier and safer. Everything the North Face makes from jackets, to vests, to hats, to gloves, and lots more is tested by professional athletes in extreme conditions to make it the best possible product. They also adhere to strict sustainability standards in their manufacturing, which is really important because getting to explore the planet while knowing you're making a choice that respects it and helps protect it is what we are all about. I personally love the North Face and I wear my beloved North Face jacket everywhere because it turns out their clothes are not just great for keeping you warm and cozy in the outdoors, they're also super cool when you're just moseying around town. So go ahead, answer that calling to get out there and explore because when you wear the North Face, it's more than a jacket, it's your story. Visit thenorthface.com. Hey, you could even do that while you listen. Go ahead and multitask and find something amazing for yourself or for a loved one this holiday season. That's thenorthface.com. Right, let's get on with the show. Hi, guys. Welcome to the Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road... My name's Aaron Miller. I'm a travel writer, and I'm so excited to have Christine Amour-Lavar on the show today because she has a really beautiful story for us about one of the most remote indigenous communities in the world. It's a glimpse into a world most of us will never see. Plus, there's reindeers. And if you're listening as this episode first comes out, it's the holiday season. So that is very, very apt. I think you're going to like this one. Are you ready? Let's go. Christine is a remarkable person. When you meet her, she strikes you as the kind of person who can just make things happen. She's got that sparkle in her eye, and she is doing that in such a cool way. A former Nike executive, she left her high flying job to start two nonprofits. Women on a Mission, which leads all female expedition teams to some of the most remote corners of the globe in order to raise funds for women affected by violence, war and abuse. And her other nonprofit is Her Planet Earth, which educates and empowers women around the world to work at the forefront of the fight against climate change. You can find out about both of those and how to get involved yourself on her website christineamorlevar.com I know that's a bit of a mouthful so I'll put that link in the show notes You can also find details of her new book up there It's called Wild Wisdom Life Lessons from Leading Teams to Some of the Most Inhospitable Places in the World It's a great book I love the title, Wild Wisdom, and it chronicles her many adventures. And there's some awesome ones in there, trust me. Plus, there's also really incredible inspiration for affecting change in the world in a really, really powerful way. I took a lot from it. So the story you're gonna hear about today is her journey alongside the Nenet reindeer herders of Siberia. It's a perfect wintry story for snuggling up with a mug of something hot in that cozy armchair of yours while watching the snowfall. But before we get going, please remember to connect with us on social media. We're on Instagram and Facebook at Armchair Explorer Podcast. You can also sign up for the newsletter at armchair-explorer.com. Lots of cool stuff in there. And if you're feeling particularly generous, you can become a patron of the show for less than the cost of a single pint. You can help support this show and help to spread our message, all of our message of love for the outdoors and the pure joy of exploring this amazing planet of ours. Thank you so much for whatever you can do. But for now, let's get into the story. Christine Amor Levar has always had travel written into her blood. As a French-Swiss-Filipino woman who grew up in both France and the Philippines, she embraced the joy and the importance of immersing yourself in different cultures from a very young age in this vein she attended university in japan launched her career in the united states and then moved overseas to singapore it was there while working as a marketing executive at one of the biggest companies in the world and raising four children at the same time that something extraordinary happened to her one day in the parking lot outside of her daughter's elementary school
1: meeting valerie you know, about 10 years ago, was really what I call my tipping point. There are people that you meet in life that I believe are meant to be put on your path. And I feel that way about Valérie. And when I recount the story of how she inspired me to change directions in my life, I still get very emotional. So basically I met her on a regular Singapore sunny day. We were picking up our kids from the French school here in Singapore. She was somebody who had purpose in her walk. She was athletic. And then one day she said to me, actually, I'm gonna be away for seven weeks. And I said, so what are you planning? And she said, actually, I'm gonna try to climb to the summit of Everest. And that literally just floored me. So meeting someone like that on a regular day, who was also a mom and telling me that she was about to climb Everest really kind of woke me up.
0: Before she met Valerie, Christine had already done quite a bit of adventuring, including several climbing and hiking trips across several continents in which she'd already lived what spoke to her about Valerie's expedition was more than just the physical feat of it. It was something deeper than that.
1: On the first try, she summited Everest, and on the summit, she held a banner that said Bearing the Flag for Women Everywhere, in support of a charity called Women for Women International that she had been volunteering with. And I just thought that that was such a beautiful moment when she came back down to Singapore After summiting Everest, you know, I met up with her and I wanted to hear all about her climb. And she had really inspired me, seeing somebody do something so brave in support of other women in need. And, you know, women survivors of war are some of the most marginalized women in the world. Oftentimes in conflict zones, they suffer more than soldiers. That plight really touched me and I realized that I needed to support this in some capacity. And so together, we decided to take a group of women, six months later, to Everest Base Camp to raise $100,000 for Women Survivors of
0: War. Their message resonated deeply with women around the world and would continue to do so. Since then, her expeditions have raised over a million dollars in support of Women Survivors of War, while at the same time empowering and changing the lives of the women who came with her, just ordinary people who chose to give up their time, grit, and determination to this incredibly important cause. But it started, her whole life-changing, transformational journey began with nine other women at the roof of the world.
1: The Everest Base Camp trek is really about endurance and being able to manage your body and your health as the altitude really climbs. It's a beautiful trek, but it's a pretty tough one. So you fly into Lukla, airport which is considered one of the most (laughs) dangerous airports in the world actually because it's it's just next to a cliff it's about 2,800 meters and you start the trek there and you climb up basically over a period of nine to ten days until you reach Everest base gap and it's really really quite steep all along the way it's beautiful you've got 8,000 meter mountains all around you because the Himalayas has the tallest mountains in the world so even if you're at three or four thousand meters you are uh, surrounded by majestic peaks and as you climb up the vegetation changes and the scenery becomes much more like, very much moonlike, you know, more arid and pristine and the lakes are turquoise and glacial. <laughs> and it's just breathtaking. And you are a little bit lightheaded because the altitude starts to affect you. A couple of my teammates had these, started getting blue lips and headaches and so we had to watch that quite carefully. And a lot of people sometimes have to turn back if they're really not feeling well with the altitude. But luckily we were okay and then we continued on to base camp and summited at the camp all together, which was a beautiful, beautiful touching experience. We were pretty exhausted. We were emotional. It was windy and cold. It was almost minus 15 degrees, I think, during the day. And we were able to sleep at base camp, which is quite a unique opportunity because most people are not really allowed to sleep at base camp unless you're summiting Everest. Uh, But because of Valérie's uh, expedition contacts, we had arranged to spend the night there next to the Kumbu Icefall, which is so dramatic and stunning and spent a a pretty horrible night with the winds and the cold and it it dropped down to minus 20 degrees i remember that night but we were just so happy we were exhausted and happy and then we started planning our descent so lots of emotion you know and and a huge sense of achievement uh, because i had never done something like that you can't compare the himalayas to any place in the world there is something that draws you and your soul is partly left behind i have to say you know there's no other place that i've ever experienced like it so the experience was Honestly, transformational. We walked with more pride coming down. That sisterhood, you know, that sense of achievement that we had gone through this experience together for such a worthy cause, you know, is something I'll never forget. Uh, Because I also want my teammates to grow and transform because they become agents of change themselves. And that's where the ripple effect continues as well. It's not just for the funds that we raise for our charity partners, it's also the women that come along with me on the journey who become sisters for life and who are then creating that positivity in their own families and their own communities.
0: With Christine's marketing and PR background, she was able to spread the word quickly about women on a mission. And soon she was receiving calls. When's the next trip? How do I sign up? She jumped in into her newfound role as an expedition leader, arranging unique and unforgettable treks for groups of women, always with a purpose to raise funds and connect with the planet and with others that she met on her trips. And she had a lot of fun doing it, too.
1: After freezing ourselves so much in Everest Base Camp, definitely the next one was a desert. So we looked at Jordan and we went rock climbing in the Wadi Ram Desert of Jordan. We were 14 women, had a beautiful experience there. Pretty long days of hiking across deserts, but also challenging ourselves on the facades of the different Jebels. After that, we went back to Nepal because we love Nepal so much, but we went to a different part in the Tsum Valley which has only been open to tourists in 2008, so we barely saw any other tourists up there. And we did the old Silk Road all the way up to 5,100 meters. We were just across where we could see the border with China. And then after that, you know, honestly, there were so many other amazing experiences because in parallel, I set up my second NGO, Her Planet Earth. So started looking at expeditions that had more of an environmental focus, we so organized trips in sailing across islands in the Philippines, understanding what some women farmers were going through in local islands, facing the depletion of fish because of dynamite fishing in certain parts. We went to Antarctica and climbed new peaks that had never been climbed by anyone before. Uh when biking across Greenland during winter, across 200 kilometers using fat bikes, the Arctic Circle Trail. And that is one I will never do again because it was so hard. I'm surprised none of us broke a bone with the amount of whiteouts we experienced in, from the bikes falling in the snow and down slopes and all sorts of situations. And another one that was very tough was the one in Ethiopia that we did in the Danakil Depression, which is the hottest place on earth. 150 meters below sea level with sulfuric acid pools and temperatures reaching up to 50 degrees Celsius. And we had the crazy idea of taking bikes there, which nobody had done, (laughs) basically like opening an oven and trying to bike in that heat. So some of those ideas I have to say, maybe we're not the smartest ones, but we definitely know how to challenge ourselves. And we're always looking at creative ways to up the challenge, if you will, because we are raising money for charity.
0: And understandably, after several trips, hiking, biking, and climbing in some of the hottest places on earth, Christine decided to veer in the opposite direction. That's how in 2015, she found herself heading to a place synonymous with cold itself, a place that literally translates to the end of the earth. She was heading to the Yamal Peninsula.
1: So the Nenets are one of the oldest remaining indigenous people who herd reindeers. And they're in the Arctic Circle region in the Yamal Peninsula, which is a part of northern Siberia. And they are traditional reindeer herders. So they travel with their herds of about 10,000 reindeer. And as the winter sets in, they migrate slightly south of a river called the Ob River to allow their reindeers to find more food. And so as they go south, they're hoping to help their reindeers find a type of grass that they eat slightly more abundant when you go to a bit warmer regions, but a bit warmer region is really an understatement because, you know, it's it's just maybe by a few degrees, but it's supposed it does matter when you're herding so many rangers and they need to feed themselves, you know, through the day, and you know there are people that don't have much with them, so they travel with their. Reindeer with their sleighs, they are wearing reindeer fur. They don't have many possessions. They also eat frozen fish that they are able to fish from making holes in different parts as they travel around rivers or lakes. So they really depend so much on their reindeer being healthy to provide shelter, warmth, and food, of course. It's not an easy life. They really are at the mercy of the climate, and the climate is very harsh in Siberia.
0: Christine had learned of the Nenet reindeer herders while doing research for another expedition. And while the tribe had hosted small groups of adventurers before, nobody had ever been crazy enough to accompany them on their winter migration. And they're hard to track down too, but as it happened, she knew somebody who knew somebody who knew the tribe and called them up and several months later, they were ready to depart, attempting What would be the first all-female crossing of the Yamal Peninsula in the frigid darkness of the Siberian winter?
1: To be honest, when I left Singapore, there was a bit of apprehension because I knew the temperatures were going to be very, very cold. We were traveling in December 2015, so we were going in the middle of winter and those temperatures really do plummet down to minus 50 degrees in Siberia. It really depends, you know, it can swing from minus 36 to minus 50. And we were going to some extreme parts, not just Moscow. We had to fly from Moscow and then go up to Salekhar and then take a truck across the frozen river and then connect with the Nenets who had started their migration. So it was a bit of a logistical challenge to organize, but we managed to do it. And so we were on our way at that time and really looking forward to it.
0: But then while crossing that frozen river, the Ob River, the last part of their long journey before they would meet up with the Nenets, Disaster struck. They were in high spirits, bouncing along at the back of the truck, slowly carving our way through the icy wilderness.
1: And suddenly there was such a loud noise and the whole truck was projected forwards and downwards. The ice had cracked on the river and the truck had plunged into the water. So unexpected, I think at the time we were singing and talking and we were making so much noise and then suddenly this happened. And I couldn't believe it happened. And the whole atmosphere in the truck changed completely. There was such an element of fear and terror you know, that kind of overtook us. I really thought this was probably the only time in my life where I thought this is it, this is the end. And there was complete fear and there was chaos and there was luggage flying everywhere and people shouting. And then the driver, the Russian driver, who didn't speak (laughs) any English, started shouting and we couldn't understand. And luckily, one of my teammates who's half Russian, half Emirati, She speaks some Russian and she started saying, wait, I think he's saying it, it floats, you know. Don't panic just yet because the wheels were so big. Because literally people were trying to open the door and jump out, you know, and that would have been much more dangerous and she could get stuck under the snow and water. But yeah, it was a chaotic moment and I tell you, I learned so much about how a team reacts when they feel an imminent danger.
0: They were able to climb safely out of the truck via a rear window. It was a close call. But even once they were safely on solid ice, they weren't out of danger yet. Hours ticked by, the sun had started sinking behind the white horizon, the temperature was plummeting, and they had no idea when or how they might be rescued. And then suddenly, a large truck rumbled towards them and a group of 10 friendly, red-nosed and bushy-bearded Moldovian oil men got out, more than a little surprised to find a group of women stranded in the middle of nowhere. They anchored the truck to their own, pulled it out of the icy waters, busted out the vodka for a few celebratory shots, and then set off on their way, leaving Christine and her team to continue their journey to meet up with the Nenets
1: after this truck ride across the frozen river late at night. So we arrived, it was quite dark, we couldn't see. It's a small town that's not far from where the Nenets actually migrate from. And we knew that we were going to meet them the next day, so we were so excited, but we were exhausted as well. Our local guide had arranged for us to wear nenet clothing because the nenets had insisted that we dress that way and none of that, you know, modern expedition stuff that... (laughs) They said, you have to wear what we're wearing to be safe. We were wearing reindeer hides and the fur was inside and it had mittens attached to them so you wouldn't lose them. Little mittens also with the reindeer fur and then thigh-high reindeer boots. So they're the warmest things you can wear. So the men, the nenet men came to pick us up in their snowmobiles, and they brought some box sleighs with them, which was where we were gonna load up our luggage and ourselves (laughs) into. They were dressed in all their nenet regalia, which is quite impressive. They're tall men, they look Eurasian a bit. They've got an incredible mix of kind of Caucasian and Asian. Some of them have blue eyes that are almond shaped. and but they're all very strong and tall. You know, they're reindeer herders, they're tough guys. You know. So they drove us and it was a crazy ride, you know, in that kind of temperature. And probably it was, I think it was minus 25 that morning and with the windshield factors being bobbed around into the box lays and then we arrived at the tribe and here they were in such a beautiful setting, all white, amazing chums, you know, all around in a, in a circle, if you will. The tribe came out to see us, the women, the children were all staring at us. Who are these people? They had heard we had visitors, and then we were assigned to stay with different families.
0: When viewed from afar, the Nenet camp vaguely resembles a semicircle of slumbering brown and white giants, huddled together against the icy wind and snow. Their community consists of approximately 45 nenet herders, men, women, and children, 20 herding dogs, adorable but hardy bundles of black fluff, and seven tombs, the traditional nenet tents. Each tomb is built with sturdy wooden poles, arranged in a wide conical shape and layered with overlapping reindeer herds. A stove in the center keeps the tomb warm as plumes of white smoke coil up puffing into the freezing air through the small opening in the top christine was staying with the tribe's leader yuri who lived in his tomb with his wife parents child and nine dogs
1: we piled into the tomb, and we were so inelegant because we arrived and they were looking at us they're like please don't put snow in the tomb, please so we were like with our coats we like i remember we fell in we brought snow by accident in and we were very conscious that we were bringing snow into their home you know you realize, oh my God, you know I have to be more careful and make sure we don't dirty their home. And basically, fur was everywhere, you know, I mean, I even if I tried to take my toothbrush out, there was fur everywhere. We were sleeping on reindeer blankets on the ground you know the chum is made of reindeer hide as well so it's everywhere and we also brought in our sleeping bags our minus 40 degree sleeping bag because at night the temperature in the chum drops to minus 15 because they turn off the stove basically they have a little portable stove as well so you wake up and you know you're in the chum, even though we're sleeping with a whole group of people and nine dogs it is very cold as well
0: A nighttime temperature of minus 15 degrees Celsius is nearly negative 60 Fahrenheit. That first night, Christine and her companions were extremely grateful that the Nenets had insisted on outfitting them with traditional reindeer hide clothing. It really is the warmest and best protection they could have had. But even for those who managed to fall asleep, the migration itself was set to begin the very next morning and it was not a schedule for the faint of heart.
1: Around four AM they start waking up, they turn on the stove, we get one quick cup of tea, and then everybody starts packing everything. We us because we didn't really exactly know how to help them, we just tried to get out of the way, you know, pack our bags, put our clothes on, and basically step out of the tent with our bags and then we kind of watch them as they start, you know, dismantling their tent. Then the men go out and get, uh, from the 10,000 reindeer, they have special transport reindeers, which are reindeers that are more tame, that they have hand-fed as babies growing up. So they go on their snowmobile and they go towards the herd, which is generally a little bit further from the camp. And they come back with those transport reindeer who know exactly what to do. Then they harness them on the sleigh, and then everything gets piled up. And it takes a few hours to get ready. So the dogs are running around, the women are packing up, the men are putting the reindeer in place in the queue with a sleigh attached to it. And then basically, before you know it, we're like, okay, everybody on, let's go. (laughs) And then we're sitting next to them and we're just going like, wow, this is happening. (laughs) And it's still a bit dark when we set off and we know that we're going to be on the road for about 10 hours or so. So you just make sure you're wearing your balaclava because of the, the wind and because you're not hiking, you really do have to make sure that you're warm and you have enough layers on and you've got all the extremities covered because it is so incredibly cold and windy. So your extremities get very numb very fast. And then you're sitting with one of the herders who's basically driving the reindeer and he's just grinning. He doesn't really talk unless you've got somebody who can translate next to you. So there was only one teammate and one guide who could really translate, so we weren't always together. So sometimes we just, you know, grin and and use sign language. But they were, you know, very polite and very nice.
0: In Siberia, the nights are cold, but the blizzard conditions during the day are even colder. As they rode next to the herders on the sleighs, Christine and her companions were mercilessly whipped by winds reaching temperatures of negative 100 degrees Fahrenheit, cold enough to freeze exposed skin in less than two minutes. But as they were quickly learning, even the harshest conditions didn't deter the Nenets from their course, heading southwards, racing against the weather to find grazing ground for their herd. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle Built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating.
1: All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The migration were every two days. So it wasn't every day, which allowed us to spend a bit more time in camp and get firewood. So we'd pull a sleigh and bring back some firewood. We'd go and pull some water as well from the hole that they would make in the nearby river or lake. Some of the teammates got to do some weaving as well. So, you know, and then we would just go about our business, and suddenly, without warning, they would decide that it was time to slaughter a reindeer and we would suddenly go, oh my God, it's happening now. <laughs> so let's, let's focus on this, you know? So Because they don't announce what they're doing to us, right? We're just there and we're just trying to not be in their way.
0: For centuries, the Nenets have lived in a symbiotic relationship with their reindeer, herding them on long arcs from north to south and back north again to help them find greener pastures. In return, every few weeks, they slaughter a reindeer, which they utilize not only for food, but for tools, ropes, clothes, blankets, and more. No part of the animal goes to waste. And while watching the reindeer die may have felt distressing to someone outside of the Nenet culture. It was just a natural part of life for them. She writes, the rope around the reindeer's neck pulled taut by three broad-shouldered herders squeezed the remaining life out of it. Slowly its resistance weakened, its eyes glazed over and fixed on a point in the arctic sky above, and then suddenly, complete stillness.
1: Then they open it up, and suddenly it's like blood everywhere. The whole tribe comes to the reindeer and starts drinking blood, and that's where we experience it. It's quite a scene, you know? And the guide was telling us that in Russia, some people make fun of them and call them vampires, which is so unfair, but this is just one of their tradition. This is how they get their nutrients. For centuries, this is how they fed themselves and survived in, in these kind of conditions. And it actually tasted quite good, you know? I have to say, when you try raw reindeer blood, and it's fresh like that, so it's still warm, it's salty, and it's in a very cold environment. So I think it would be very different if, if it was like in a tropical environment, and you start drinking blood. I don't think I could do it, but given it's so cold out there and you know, temperature affects tastes as well. You know, temperature affects the taste of food. And then actually it, it wasn't that bad at all. We tried kidney as well and liver, little bits. But yeah, when you see that happening for the first time, it's quite a scene. You know? There's blood on people's faces and hands. And, and when blood dries, you know, it's mostly, water actually and i remember that we had our hands also you know full of blood and and suddenly I, I was like oh my god my hands are hurting so much from the cold because the blood is drying on my fingers so you'd have to try to go back and put your mittens with dry blood on them but quite a scene to see you know and it's actually okay you know it's an experience
0: <laughs> and while it was hard in many ways christine was also honored to share in this centuries-old practice with the nenet people She and her companions were living under their care, living their way of life, trying to survive in the dead of winter in one of the least hospitable places on earth. And in that kind of environment, life and death were balanced on a knife edge.
1: We were always asked to walk out of the camp in pairs because suddenly the weather can change and you can lose sight of the camp. These accidents can happen very easily. You may realize that you thought the camp was right behind you and before you know it, you're not sure how to get back. And if a storm comes and you're just, even with your clothes, then you will freeze to death. So we would go in pairs to go to the bathroom in the snow, you know, because they stipulated that we had to be quite far away from camp. They have many rules around women, especially, like the invisible line that was in the tomb. You couldn't put your hand across the invisible line, which of course, by accident, we always did. But luckily they were quite good natured and they were quite forgiving (laughs) with some of the mistakes we made.
0: The rules of the tribe were there to keep people alive but some of the rules particularly around women were also cultural and harder to understand particularly for an all-female expedition team in which female empowerment was at the very core of what they were doing and why they were there
1: the women had such an important part to play in the whole tribal life as well of the nenets you know so there were rules that made sure that we're not allowed to step over men's tools and women were not allowed to show any part of their anything related to parts of their body that are reproductive parts so they were very particular about that and they believed it brought bad luck and so you know there was all these rules that we were very careful to respect but at any point we never felt that they mistreated their women they showed respect to their women they were very protective of their women and the women you know in the tomb were in charge making sure that everybody was fed, and also in charge of the dismantling as migrations would come, would start again every few days. But they did ponder a little bit on the freedom that we had to suddenly leave our husbands and families and come across the world to migrate with them. So they did think that it was a little bit, you know, exciting. They used to ask us funny questions when we'd have a glass of vodka with them sometimes in the chums, like, why do your husbands let you do this? And we, we said, well, because they have no choice anyway. I would sense that they almost wanted to come with us on the next expedition, you know, and try that kind of life. Because they found it quite funny that here we were, we were so free, we were women that could do that. So there was that sense, but they're also bound by so many obligations in terms of making sure that they are committed to their tribe. So they have different kind of, I suppose, they live by different rules, and it is very much tied to the life they chose, this traditional life, which requires all of the tribe to support each other in order to make sure that they survive and, and are safe.
0: And in fact, every member of the Nenet tribe was there out of deliberate choice. They wanted to be there, but that choice is also a hard one. Knowing on the one hand that an easier, more comfortable life is possible, and on the other, that the only way to keep their culture alive is to forego that comfort and ease and choose the hard life of their ancestors instead.
1: The numbers of Nenets are dwindling. So the Russian government actually has stipulated that by the age of seven, Nenet children have to go to school. And so they have to make sure that at some point, the Nenet children are taken to public Russian schools. And actually, the Russian government then organizes helicopters to to drop the kids back to the tribe that's traveling. And then when they become adults, the children can choose, do they want to become Nenet reindeer herders or do they want to just integrate society, Russian society? And many times, a lot of them don't want that harsh life. So at night, when we were in the room, they would bring out the vodka and we'd have a bit of a chat then. And his father, Yuri's father was more chatty. We, we used to call him Papa Smurf because he had a blue sweater. <laughs> he was really friendly. Again, so telling us a little bit about some of their struggles. And they did say, I mean, the life they have chosen is tough. It's not the life for everyone because actually the sisters of Papa Smurf, one night they came on a, a whole bunch of snowmobiles to come and visit him. So he had five sisters, so we had such a fun night in the tomb because his sisters came and they all said, we're not living this life. We don't want this. We want the comfort of the city. We want the hot running water. And they were kind of laughing a little bit at the fact that their brother had chosen this life.
0: But that's why Yuri was the leader. And the longer Christine stayed with him and got to know him, the more she came to feel that he embodied the kind of strength and community and mutual care that has enabled the Nenet people to survive for centuries. Watching Yuri in action, she writes, crystallized for me that tribal leadership is not simply an act or a series of acts or directing a process or playing a role. Tribal leadership is the embodiment of a culture, of traditions, of learned patterns of thoughts and behaviors, values and beliefs. And gradually, as the days of the migration rolled on, Christine and her team fell into step with the Nenet people, growing accustomed to the herding pace of life. She writes, as the days went by, I learned to appreciate the tranquility of the boundless empty spaces, while the deafening silence of the frozen tundra kept me suspended in time. The dramatic sunrises and sunsets were unforgettable, even if I confused the two, given the days were so short. But even savoring the moment couldn't stop the time from passing. And several days later, their trip was finally coming to an end.
1: By the seventh day, obviously, uh, traveling with them, we had not showered. (laughs) Uh, I had hair that was stuck to my skull, and yet, you know, we had gotten to a rhythm. You know, we had helped them, we knew our chores. We felt that we were actually contributing a little bit to their life by being more efficient, trying to do the daily chores, like getting some wood and water. And we were joking with some of the women in particular and chatting more with them and exchanging ideas and stories. When we finally left the tribe, there were some tears actually, they were so lovely. We took a group shot with all the children. So it was quite an emotional departure. But when we finally got back to our first stop, Yarsaleh, the small village, we ended up piling into an inn and there was one shower for, for I think, 12 of us. And we had to draw, draw, you know, strings to to see who could take the first shower. So that was quite funny, actually. But we were, you know, on a high, obviously, from this experience, you know, mind-blowing experience in so many ways, with so many stories to tell. Of course, happy to start the journey back, but absolutely unforgettable memories you know i think we came back different you know a new appreciation for the life that they had but also the life we are able to live and the comforts we have and of course looking forward to getting back to our families every time my teammates and i come back from these expeditions we are always so happy to be home we're happier people we appreciate little things like you know showers that actually work and not having to trek 200 meters to go to the bathroom <laughs> and, and my husband always says that you know i come back a happier person and, and, and just a, such a more grateful in my heart, you know. And so many of our teammates feel that way. And I think that's also one of the big benefits of putting yourself out there, putting ourselves outside of our comfort zone, but also learning from a group of people whose life is so different from us. In the case of the Nenets, you know, they seem very happy with their lives. I don't think they envy us having our city life and the complications that that entails as well. They have a purer life in many ways. And in some cases, it's us who envy that purity of life, if you will, where it's less complicated. And yes, there is, The challenge of surviving in harsh conditions and they don't maybe have the luxuries that we enjoy but a lot of times they seem very content and happy and they have their family they know their priorities and some would argue that they could be much happier than people living in big cities with the comforts that we enjoy
0: and though obviously christine did return to her modern city-bound life full of amenities and comforts the lessons of the nenets stayed with her as she continued her travels. In fact, she began to refer to their way of life, a connectedness with nature that is seen across almost all indigenous cultures as wild wisdom, which would become the name of her book and the foundation of her life.
1: Wild Wisdom is the kind of leadership that I've found through these experiences, and it's tied to what you learn from spending time in the natural world and understanding how Indigenous people operate and how nature also impacts you. The ancient wisdom of Indigenous people is something that we all should pay attention to and learn from because it can touch and help find solutions, of course, from mitigating climate change to leading in times of crisis as well, and I've seen it across the world. And, you know, to be fair, I've only scratched the surface of that knowledge by my trips there. And I have been privileged to meet many indigenous people, not just the Nenets, but even the Kazakh eagle hunters in Mongolia, the Afar in Ethiopia, the Inuit in Greenland. And they have a special relationship with nature that comes from a place of, you know, of complete respect, a deep respect. They don't look at a mountain as uh, something to conquer. They listen to the wind and uh, they look at territory as part of their tribal history. They don't look at the earth as something to exploit and look to become rich from. So that concept of ownership and conquering of earth and nature is alien to them. They are always trying to live in harmony with nature because they know it's also tied to their survival. And it's becoming tougher for them because of the way that the climate is changing, absolutely. Because if a herd loses their reindeer, they have nothing left. As the temperature is warm and there are changes that are unpredictable in the climate, what happens also is that suddenly the temperature might become warmer as it is happening more and more, and so the snow will melt, and then suddenly it will switch again and become colder, and then all the melted snow will turn to ice and freeze access to any food. And as a result, thousands of reindeers can die of starvation because if they don't feed themselves a certain amount of food every day, they actually starve, and you can't find any food for them. And so that decimates a tribe. and. They have no choice but to look for jobs in the city after that because they have no herding to do anymore. So their livelihood has become more and more exposed and precarious because of the unpredictable patterns that is affecting the weather all over the world at the moment with swings and because of the climate changing so violently. But it is a life that's close to nature and you could see that they also enjoy it. You know, they're at one with nature. It's so beautiful. It's absolutely stunning. There's emptiness and quietness. There's no noise pollution and they are doing something that their ancestors have done so there must be beauty as well in continuing that tradition and i do feel that many of them took pride in that
0: thank you christine thank you for sharing with us this glimpse into a world most of us will never see and it's so special to hear about it from someone who has at least for a short while lived it with them, and brought home these stories of endurance, strength, community, and fragility in a changing and sadly, slowly disappearing world. But beyond this journey, Christine has led some other pretty amazing and unique trips, and you can read all about them in her new book, Wild Wisdom. It really does have some fantastic stories in there, and it would make a great gift for any adventure lover in your life. So do go and check it out. On her website at christineamourlevar.com, or find it anywhere else you get your books, including your local bookshop. Go and support them; it's a great thing to do. If you want to get involved with her nonprofits, you can do so by going to womenmission.com. That's for women on a mission, of course, and herplanetearth.com. You can even sign up for one of her expeditions if you're feeling inspired. Why not? Both organizations have some fantastic trips coming up, including a never-before-done trek across the Namib Desert in Namibia, which sounds particularly awesome. Namibia is somewhere I have always wanted to visit. I'd also like to give a final thank you to The North Face for sponsoring the show and helping to bring this story to you. Go to thenorthface.com to check out what they have for this winter and beyond. I love The North Face, and buying their gear is a great way to support the show. How good is that? Also, just a quick reminder to check out that new show of mine, Hidden Trails of Oregon. It's a three-part series, totally immersive, recorded on location in surround sound with a ton of crazy adventures. The link is in the show notes, so go there right now. Subscribe to the show and check it out the next time you're looking for some adventure and escape. So thank you so much for listening, guys. And don't forget to share this show with your friends. Connect with us on Instagram and Facebook at Armchair Explorer Podcast. And if you can... Become a patron of the show to help us to continue to bring these stories to you and to spread this message, our message of love for the outdoors, living life to the full and the pure joy of exploring this amazing planet of ours. So until next time, keep pushing yourself to leave your comfort zone. Keep your heart open to new experiences and keep looking for that wild wisdom because the more we look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive. This episode was produced by Armchair Productions. Find our other shows at armchair-productions.com. Jenny Allison co-produced the show with me and Charles Tyree did the audio editing and sound design. I'm Aaron Miller. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.